It truly is amazing love when we think of this morning and the work that will be done over the next few moments in the study of the Word of God. We think of those great truths that we just sang of, which reflect in the ministry time of Christ. We will, as Scott mentioned earlier, we will be celebrating communion, so if you have not picked up those elements, please do so as we prepare our hearts for uh, that special ordinance that speaks of the love of Christ for us. And uh, we will be building up to that point this morning as we work through 1 Thessalonians, which I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians as we continue now in chapter 5 together. As uh, we're turning there, I wanted to reiterate some of what Scott was saying this morning as well on the weather. This is Uh, Last night, Lisa and I were sitting waiting to pick up one of our kids from one of the events that they were involved with, and the sun was setting. And as it was setting, it had the light blue to the pink sunset, and the temperature was just about right. Uh, I like that, kind of cool but not cold, and uh, just that that, uh, almost felt spring-ish. I'm very careful about saying that. Uh, but it did feel that way, and actually tomorrow my family and I will be flying to Colorado, and that's what it feels like in the winter in Colorado. Uh, that's how I grew up, and I told Lisa, I said, this is like a, an early commercial for what's going to happen next week as our family flies out to Colorado tomorrow, and uh, we're thankful for that opportunity and for the sun. Uh, I love the sun. I grew up in Colorado. In Colorado, we have like 5,000 days of the year of sun compared to what we have here. So... We are, uh, with so much sunshine, it is hard for me when we get six, was it, I heard six minutes for, that's what Scott was saying, six minutes for all of January. I'm even more depressed about January than I was before, <laughs> but I'm thankful for the sun now. We got more than six minutes this morning on the way to, way to church, and uh, just thankful for the sun. I love the crisp, cold mornings where the frost is on the windshields. And uh, the sun is out bright shining. That, that's another uh, kind of commercial for me as we're headed back to Colorado. But take your Bibles, if you will. We turn into 1 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians, we're in chapter 5. We're ending up this discussion on the theology of what's going to happen, this eschatology. And it took me back as we we're into verses 9 through 11 of 1 Thessalonians 5. It took me back to when I was a kid And I would listen to my grandparents talk about the end times and the enthusiasm. I remember sitting around the breakfast nook that my grandparents always ate breakfast at and we as kids would come alongside them during the summer months because my mom was working next door and so um, the kids, my, my siblings and I, would gather around the breakfast nook and we would eat uh, all of the things that grandma had prepared. And I remember it was like feast for the grandkids. Uh, We'd eat everything there. And at the end of that time of breakfast, and by the time breakfast ended at Grandma's house, it was like lunchtime. So uh, we'd start at like 8 o'clock and we'd go several hours at the breakfast nook together. And it would always end with a study and devotions of some kind. And typically, I remember at least, maybe this is what stuck in my mind, But it would be surrounded many times around the coming of the Lord. And just the enthusiasm that that had built in me as a young person to see my grandparents, 
who I thought were as old as Noah, (laughs) and it would seem to me that they were so passionate about the return of the Lord. My grandma has been home with the Lord now many, many years. My grandfather has been home with the Lord about five years or so. And I don't believe that they ever lost that zeal to see the return of Christ. So as we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're bringing to a close this study of eschatology, at least for the book of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to jump into 2 Thessalonians next as we continue through these letters to the church at Thessalonica. But as we do that, we're drawing it to a close this morning with this idea of the coming of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord. And as we understand the coming day of the Lord, I trust that you have not been swayed by the pressures of society that would say or mock, what do you mean Christ is going to return? I trust that in the study of the Word of God, you have let it be superior over all philosophies of life, and that indeed you have studied it as that which is not philosophy, but the truth, as God has given to us His Word. As we reflect on it, I was convicted sometimes of how easy it is to get lost in the day-to-day and not have our attention towards eternity. I praise the Lord for that example out of my grandparents, that their eyes were set to the coming of Christ. And every day, at least most days that I remember, the devotion time would end with the reminder that Christ is coming soon. We actually, as we participate in the Lord's table together in a few moments, we recognize that Christ did that with his disciples, did he not? He pointed them to the time when he could share the communion table again anew with them in the kingdom. He's pointing them to end times. He's pointing them to the events that have not yet happened. And I trust that as we continue in our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this morning that we will have with renewed vigor this uh, incredible truth that our Savior is going to come for us. That we who know Christ as Savior will be preserved in... Uh, indeed, from having to go through the time of the wrath that we're going to spend so much time discussing this morning. And so with that, we're going to dig into the text of the Word of God, but we need the Lord's help. Obviously, as so much ink has been spilled over the issues of eschatology, there's so much confusion that exists there. So let us ask the Lord's blessing and His help as we study this text together. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we draw in to the final few verses of eschatology here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And as we do so, we recognize that our attentions can be so diverted from the bad news that we hear around the world, from the hectic, chaotic busyness of daily living, whether that be through family calendars or through work schedules and difficulties, co-workers challenges, neighbor challenges, familial challenges, whatever would cause us, prevent us from focusing on eternity and giving you glory. Lord, we pray that those things would be set aside this morning, that as we dig into your word, that we will be those who dig with diligence, waiting for and praying for the coming rapture of the church and the day of the Lord to follow. Lord, these things have received a lot of attention by authors and scholars and They have confused and muddied the waters in many cases. Pray that today that your spirit would aid in our understanding of your word, that we'd cut through some of that chaotic noise 
let the scripture speak for itself, to understand it, to apply it, and then to be changed because of it. Lord, these are sober texts as we dig into them, recognizing that the wrath that will come is a wrath that is calculated, a wrath that is not hasty or under compulsion. It is not compulsive either. So Lord, we pray that your name would be glorified in our study this morning, that our hearts would be listening quiet and quickly to obey, that your name would be glorified in it. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this word that is before us. We pray that it would be delivered in a manner that glorifies you, that your spirit would aid in these prayers where we do not know how to ask or what to ask. And so we give you the glory and the honor for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we dig into the text that is before us today, we begin in verse 9 where the scripture says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build, up one, or build one another up just as you are doing. So as we dig in, we begin by looking first into God's merciful grace. We've come through this very significant text. And the text that we have come through actually starts back in chapter 4 and works all the way through almost the entirety of chapter 4, building up to the end of chapter 4, where Paul says, encourage one another with these words. And now, as we'll conclude the eschatological portion of chapter 5, Paul says a very similar statement. And so we've been building up to these two crescendos, encourage one another with these words. And Paul, throughout chapter 4, has been speaking specifically related to the coming of Christ to meet the church in the clouds. From verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4, Paul has been encouraging the church to be ready that those who have fallen asleep, in other words, those who have passed away in this life of this age, will rise to meet Christ in the air, and those who are yet alive and remain will join with them. This is the next eschatological event that you and I are preparing for. This is the rapture of the church. This is that moment in time where Christ will fulfill what he promised in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, where he says, I'm going away away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away to prepare a place for you, I'm coming again to take you with me also. And so Paul is reflecting on these great truths as Paul has focused then on the end times theology to encourage the Thessalonian believers who are anticipating the coming of the Lord. And as they're looking around, they're noticing, hey, wait, we're getting older, and there are a number of our, number, uh, number of our fellowship who have passed away. Are they going to miss out when the Lord returns? That's the pressing question that Paul is seeking to address. But as Paul has addressed that issue, he is saying, no, they will not miss out, but let me tell you a few more details. Because the next question comes, and this is what Paul has been addressing in chapter 5, if they're not going to miss out on the coming of Christ to meet them in the clouds in the air, then what about those who remain? Because if Christ comes to meet them in the air, the church in the air, then you have those who are not of the church who will yet remain. And you have the promise, the second question, of the kingdom. Will Christ not inaugurate the kingdom? And Paul gives 
a timeline that's very important, or at least time distinctions that are very important for us. And that Paul gives these distinctions. He's encouraging the believers at Thessalonica, not only that they can encourage one another because as they see one another passing away, that they're not going to be left behind. They're not going to be those who miss out on the rapture events. But they're also needing to live for a time that is not yet here and they will not participate in. These natural questions. What is God going to do next? Paul answers those questions in chapter 5 by referring to a period of time after the rapture of the church called the day of the Lord. And we traced its theme over the last few weeks. We've traced it throughout several Old Old Testament and New Testament passages to understand as these events begin to unfold of the tribulation and the coming millennial kingdom that these are what Paul is referring to as the coming day of the Lord. These are the day of the Lord. Nevertheless, there may remain confusion in the church at Thessalonica, and we certainly know because of the amount of ink that has been spilled in our time today that there's confusion that exists in our time. So Paul provides a call to obedience both both here in 1 Thessalonians, and he will do so again in 2 Thessalonians as he will write again to the church there at Thessalonica. And as he does so, he calls our obedience today to these issues that. Uh, pertain to very significant daily living in these moments. Our obedience today are to be sober and in the light. Because those who are in darkness and in the state of drunken stupor are not paying attention. They're asleep. They're not aware. They're not self-controlled. And they're not ready for the coming day of the Lord. So Paul has drawn these two distinctions using the illustrations of light and sobriety and drunkenness and darkness as us versus them, as it were. And he's preparing the church at Thessalonica to understand that there's more after the tribulation. The world does not cease to exist as soon as the rapture takes place. Ah, it's all over. There's more to come. Why is that important? Why is that important for the believer in 2024? I would entertain the idea that for the believer in 2024, if God does not inaugurate, if Christ does not inaugurate his kingdom, then our faith has no foundation. And that's what we find actually back in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 reminds us that nothing, Romans chapter 8, the end of 8, reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ And then the unnamed questioner in Romans chapter 9 kind of poses this question that Paul begins to answer, what about Israel? Is God done with Israel? And if God was completed with his eschatological program by finishing up with the church and the rapture of the church, then God would indeed be done with Israel, but God is not done. Why is it important for the church today to know of the events that are going to happen after the church is gone? Because our the foundation of our faith rests on those great truths, that God will do what he said he's going to do, that God will fulfill the word that he promised, that when he spoke to Daniel, when he spoke to Zephaniah, when he spoke to Zechariah, when he spoke to Ezekiel, when he spoke to Jeremiah and Isaiah and many others, Joel and Amos as well, that God is going to finish what he started with the nation of Israel. And so therefore, our faith is grounded in the truth of what God has revealed through his word to his prophets recorded for us in the scriptures. 
and then our faith blossoms all the more. When we hold these truths to be what they are, the Word of God, then we will be those who begin to trust more deeply into what God's Word says about the future, even though we can't tangibly put our finger on it. It's pretty easy for us to look back and go, ah, see, if Paul would have said or done or did, uh, if he had done this, then we could see that, touch that, experience that in some way. And he could have changed or altered had he changed this direction or this direction. And so we can look back with better visibility than we can look forward. But Paul is calling the church to look forward, to look to tomorrow, to look to the events that will take place outside of our scope of vision. And he's reminding the believer of two prophetic appointments. And those two prophetic appointments will help clarify and help us understand the differences of these two events. And so verse 9 starts with a reminder that you and I are not destined to wrath. Some of your translations may say appointed to wrath. That's where I get the word appointment from for our illustration that we just used. There's two prophetic appointments that are coming. These events are yet future, but you can put them into your calendar. You just can't put a date and a time on it. But you know it's coming. Plan for it. Prepare for it. Verse 9 says, For God has not destined, or appointed, as some of your translations say, us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 starts with great joy after what we've just worked through in verses 8 and those that had been prior to that. We, we recognize this challenge of living as Christians today, shining light with sobriety, self-control, in preparation for a day that you and I will not enter into, no matter what, if you know Christ as Savior. If the rapture of the church were to happen today and you know Christ as Savior and the day of the Lord starts tomorrow, you will not make it to the day of the Lord. That's not your appointment. But you will make it to the rapture. Because that's your appointment, if you know Christ as Savior. And that's what Paul is saying. You are not destined for wrath. The word translated for appointments or destined, as my translation says, it is kind of a misnomer. It's hard, it's hard for us in our English minds, especially as we think of calendars and appointment schedules and those kinds of things. certainly has that connotation, but it is far more than that. It literally means, the word appointed or destined literally means to cause someone to experience with the implication of subjecting a person to something. That's its definition. So what Paul is saying is, you have not been one who is caused, that God is causing to go through wrath. That's what he means. Consider that. Let that sink in for just a moment, given everything Paul has just said. He says, going back to verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. And we understand that this is because it is up to the Father when these times and seasons are there. But then Paul uses the word that we have picked out of the Greek language and used for our appointment calendars. He uses the same word, but what he means is that you have not been caused, God has not caused you to do something that entails the wrath that has come during the day of the Lord. You who know Christ as Savior are not going to attend the appointment of wrath. 
those who are in darkness are appointed, are destined, are caused to experience that wrath. So Paul has been contrasting us versus them, and in fact he's using that language throughout chapter 5. He starts out somewhat generic in his language of pronouns when he's starting to speak of you, and then he starts to speak of us, and then he starts to speak of them. And so Paul has included himself. Notice as he continues in that theme, he says in verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. Paul is including himself in the number of those in Thessalonica who know Christ as Savior. So it's not just location. It's not just a group of people at a specific period of time. Paul is saying, I am included in that number who will not meet wrath, whether Christ were to return today or tomorrow or sometime in the future. Paul is not included in that number, and if you know Christ as Savior, neither are you. How critical it is, then, for us to understand that if you do not yet know Christ as Savior, and Christ were to return, that you are appointed for wrath. That is your appointment. It will be the focus of other passages as Paul begins to speak on those issues and and others. John will speak on those issues as well as we see in the book of Revelation and so forth. Uh, Paul will begin to speak some on other topics that will happen during this day of the Lord as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as he focuses on the eternal side, on the heavenly side. But Paul's focus here is And 1 Thessalonians reminds the readers that all believers in Christ during our age will be raptured, alive or dead, those who have passed away, will be raptured away. We will be taken together with Christ to meet him in the air because you are not set up for the appointment of wrath. You will be appointed to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And so as we look at this great truth that we are not destined for wrath, we must also understand what is the wrath of God that we would be so fearful of it. Well, one of the texts that I entertained to have us read in our call to worship this morning comes out of Revelation, and really Revelation chapters 5, 6, and following. There's just no place to stop. It just keeps going. And when we see the wrath of God being poured out, we recognize that the wrath of God is not like our wrath. You may be angry, you may be violent, you may not be violent, you may be passive. You may have uh, some sort of compulsion that leads you into certain behavior, or you may act compulsively, that would be instantly. You go from zero to 60, real super quick, just with one statement that somebody has said, and your wrath comes out and, and... Anybody in the way of your wrath better watch out. And we almost take pride in that in some cases. What is God's wrath? What's fascinating to me is we have studied throughout our eschatological study here at 1 Thessalonians that we have also looked over to 2 Peter where God is defined as one who is patient, waiting for the last to come to know Christ as Savior. God's wrath is being patiently withheld, waiting for the last ones to come to know Christ as Savior. That is not a compulsive wrath, but it is a holy wrath. It will not be mocked 
because it is sitting seemingly silent today, does not mean that it will not be exercised in its fullest. It is just because God has been, His holiness has been violated, and it demands justice. And not in the social justice that we think of, especially in the last few years, but in true, authentic, unbiased justice. God's wrath is not given to whims. It is patiently withheld, but it is fearful. It is awe-inspiring, and it is complete. And God's wrath will literally be poured out on this earth during the seven years of tribulation. So significantly will it be done so that the second half is far worse than the first half. And it will set up the inauguration of the kingdom when Christ returns. But that is not your destiny if you know Christ as Savior not to endure that period of the wrath of God. Instead, we recognize through God's merciful grace the gift of salvation. And that's where Paul takes us as we dig into this text in verse 9, at the very end of verse 9, he says, but to obtain salvation. It's not your appointment, it's not your destiny for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than wrath, those who know Christ as Savior are subject to two events. The first is salvation. The first is salvation. God has destined us for salvation as part of his gracious, divine intention. In what follows, the essence of this salvation, in verses 10 and, and, so, and verse 11, the essence of this salvation is described as being eternal fellowship with Christ. So Paul is not necessarily speaking of salvation as something that the Thessalonians have not yet obtained, although there may be those within the church at Thessalonica who have not yet come to know Christ as Savior, as there are perhaps in Byron Center Bible Church, those who have not yet come to know Christ as Savior. And that is the essential first step of receiving Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works, but to receive Christ alone for the salvation that he offers to you by his death. The payment of your sins and my sins, receiving him as a free gift. That is what is necessary for salvation. And Paul is not necessarily speaking of that event, but the continuation of what salvific purposes mean. So when you've come to know Christ as Savior and you've received the gift of salvation, you have not yet already obtained all that there is to know about salvation. You are saved, yes. But how many of you feel heavenly right now? There's more to our salvation, right? We have the moment of salvation, the moment of conversion, but as Paul is speaking of this issue of salvation, he is saying that you will be redeemed instead of facing the wrath of God. So the fullness of the salvific experience while you are saved and its promise is guaranteed, Romans chapter 8, it is not recognized in its fullness in your life right now. You still sin. You still struggle with sanctification on a day-to-day -day basis, moment-by-moment basis. 
and you have not yet received your glorified bodies. So Paul is speaking of the process of all that is salvation, from the moment of conversion to the moment of running into the arms of our Savior. Paul is speaking of that, obtaining salvation. That, if you know Christ as Savior, is your divine appointment to run into the arms of your Savior. And the culmination of not only running into the arms of your Savior, but also to receive the glorified bodies free of all of the ailments that you woke up with this morning. Those who have obtained salvation do so according to the appointment and the calling of God and through the work of the death of the Lord Jesus. I find it fascinating that Paul clarifies that issue here. He could have rapidly moved on to any other eschatological events, but notice what he says here. He says, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot obtain salvation in any other way. Salvation is by grace through faith, and it is a demonstration of the merciful grace of God as a gift to you. But you have to receive it. Each believer, then, is responsible for walking in a manner worthy of the calling of God. Turn back to Second or First Thessalonians chapter two, verse twelve, where this theme was pulled from the text. As we saw, as we studied it together, the Scripture says, "We exhort each of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into His own kingdom and glory." So Paul is not writing these things as a greeting and then saying, well, that's disconnected from the rest of my letter. He's writing 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, calling the Thessalonian believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God as Christ has called them into his kingdom and his glory. This coming age. Christ is calling those of this age to participate with him in the next age after we have been raptured and glorified with Christ. When we receive Christ as Savior, we are saved. But the fullness of our salvation requires that you participate in it. Not that you're participating for it. You're not working for your salvation. You're working out your salvation, as other scriptures remind us. So you're living in light of the one who owns you. Who owns you? If you know Christ as Savior, Christ owns you. And you're living in light of what Christ demands from you. And that is where Paul goes next as he reminds us of our next element of this great truth, and that is eternal life. You have an appointment to eternal life. The death of Christ was for us, that we may be with him in eternity. Look into verse 10. He says, This, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. This is the first time and the only time in the epistle, in this letter to the church at Thessalonica, where Paul speaks of Christ's work as being for or on the benefit of the Christian and Christ receiving the Christian to himself. Everything that Paul has been saying is the Christian should be doing these things, should be living these things out. But now he says that your salvation was so that you may live with Christ. Many times we focus on, what do I get out of it? What do I get out of it? What do I get out of it? Paul has reserved what you get out of it until one of the very last statements of the epistle. 
He's called us to obedience. He's called us to walking faithfully. He's called us to walk in a manner worthy of our Father. But he's also called us to eternal life that we may be with Christ forever. This is the restoration of what our souls have craved since the fall in the Garden of Eden. It's far beyond that craving even. And so we celebrate this great truth of eternal life. And Paul focuses his readers on it. We're going to spend some more time today because the eternal life affects the way that we live today. What does it mean to live today in 2024? Why is this all important? Why would Paul write this to the Thessalonian church, inspired of the Holy Spirit, that it would be captured in the Word of God as inspired by God? What does it matter to us? First, there are some reasonable expectations from you and I. Notice what Paul says again in verse 10. Who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The word for live with him has a future connotation to it, certainly. Paul is certainly drawing out what has not yet happened. But there is the responsibility, as has been the theme of the entire letter, to live for him today until you live with him tomorrow. We as Christians have the responsibility to live for Christ today until we live with him tomorrow. Paul is returning to a thematic response to end times theology. Why do end times theology matter? Many in the church today, large universal church today, those who are believers certainly, but have lost their way in theology on this point, will say, well, end times theology is so confusing. It's so difficult. There's just so much we don't know about it. And they have spilled gallons of ink to tell you that. And while there are certainly elements that we do not understand in in the pages of Scripture regarding eschatological truth, we recognize that that does not prevent us from studying these great doctrines and paying intentional purpose to them. And then living out the truths that we have studied and understand Scripture to be saying. Paul does not let us do that. If we were to wholesale discount chapters 4 and 5, which many theologians attempt to do of 1 Thessalonians, then we miss out on the great truths of your responsibility in 2024. What should you be doing Right now, if you know that you are not subjected to the divine appointment of wrath, but that instead you are going to be appointed or destined for the rapture, how would you live today differently than if you had not known that information? And I think there should be a dramatic difference. Go back to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. These are familiar words to us, but I want us to see them on the page so that we begin to understand why this is so important. Because Paul has built through 11 chapters of incredible theology in the book of Romans, and then he comes up with this statement. What is the reasonable expectation of all of this wonderful truth? Paul has done the same in Romans as he has done in 1 Thessalonians. Let's see it now in Romans. Paul says this, Romans 12, 1. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Those words could have been written at the end of 1 Thessalonians 5, every bit as they could have been written here in Romans chapter 12. What is the reasonable expectation, your spiritual act of worship, as the ESV says, some of your translations say your reasonable act of worship, and I like that better. That seems to fit the context better. What is reasonable in your now response to what you've learned? What is reasonable to your response of the end times? What is reasonable for you in looking at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? What is reasonable for you to do in light of it in 2024? The appropriate response to these doctrines and these great truths would be that you and I be living sacrifices. Holy and acceptable to God. That we would not be conformed to the image of this world because this world does not know what's going to happen tomorrow. But you do. So be transformed by the renewal of your minds so that you may test and discern to know what the will of God is. Beloved, you have a piece of information that those who are outside of Christendom, those who do not know Christ as Savior, and even, unfortunately, many believers who have rejected these truths, they could still know Christ as Savior and reject what's going to happen in the future. You know information they don't have. So let us not look to them for what we should do today. Let's look to the discernment, the will of God. Not conformed to the pressures of the world around us that try to seek you and shape, to shape you into the mold of what the world thinks you should be. But to be transformed by the renewal of your minds. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-8 may speak of these events that will happen after we've been removed in the rapture. But we have a responsibility, once we know them, and we do know them, we have a responsibility of demonstrating Christ while time yet remains for us to do that. And that means that we must have eternal pursuits. Eternal pursuits. If we are eternal... This is what Paul reminds us here. He says, verse 10, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. In other words, whether you have passed away in this life before the rapture of the church or you are yet alive when Christ returns for his church, then you are eternal. You'll be taken to Christ to live with him forever. If you are eternal, you should have an eternal perspective. This cuts through the consumeristic confusion that we face in our 21st century world. 22nd, we are those who must be found faithful, diligent, with a mindset to the future. If we are diligent and faithful with a mindset to the future, then we will follow Paul's command in verse 11. We will come alongside one another.
Verse 11 says this, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you were doing. Paul tells the church at Thessalonica what the church needed to do in that day. And that has not changed for us in 2024. What is it that the church should be doing in light of these future events? In light of the truth that we are eternal, in light of the truth that we are not appointed to wrath, in light of the truth that Christ is going to come for his church and rapture us up with him, whether we are alive or dead, we will be raptured together, all believers of this age, from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ to meet us in the clouds. All will be raptured to that glorious event. So what should we be doing now? Well, Paul says that you ought to be an oasis in the desert. He doesn't use that terminology. That's my terminology. You are to be an oasis in the desert. You are to be an encouragement to one another, building one another up. The church today, while waiting for the rapture, has a responsibility to individual, or rather individually and corporately, to show Christ. We must be showing Christ to those who do not know Christ as Savior. But Paul's emphasis in verse 11 is we must be showing Christ to those who do know Christ. To encourage one another. The land that we live in, while we wait for the rapture, is not fruitful. It's not fertile. It is as the sands of a parched desert. But the church provides an oasis in the desert to encourage one another and to build up one another. When you become exhausted by the principles and the policies that you have to deal with at work, where do you turn? When you have to deal with the conflict and the challenges that exist and the challenges that are in your family, where do you turn? And you may be sitting there and saying, well, the church has its own problems. That's right, because you and I belong to it, right? Because you and I are here. And isn't that what Paul just said we should be doing? Encouraging one another through those problems. So when we see somebody, when we see problems that exist, we don't flee from them. You who are in Christ, flee to them and encourage and strengthen and build up. Encourage one another. That's what it means to encourage one another, to strengthen each other, to help each other's resolve to follow Christ more deeply. The church in Thessalonica was already doing that. Paul says you're already doing it at the end of verse 11, just as you are doing. But he is encouraging them to do it all the more. Why? Because we live in a fruitless, barren world. And it's hard. And some of that tracks into the church on our shoes. One of the frustrations that I have here, living in Michigan, is the amount of salt. I know it's a small thing. But there's a tremendous amount of salt. You walk on a sidewalk, it follows you for a month. And you walk into a place and all this salt comes with you. It's the same thing that happens when you walk in the world outside and you track in all of the stuff of a barren, fruitless world. And so, yes, are you going to have things to unpack? Certainly. You're going to have things to unpack in the body of Christ. 
But the church should be encouraging one another, building up one another in those moments where we've tracked in all of the garbage that we have brought in with us. And instead of looking back and saying, who tracked that in? We should be looking to one another and saying, let us work together to avoid tracking that in. And it is a reciprocal relationship, which I've just alluded to. It's a reciprocal relationship. An important, and I believe, most often overlooked joy and responsibility in, the, in our age is this truth. It is a blessing of the church to be the oasis in the desert in a reciprocal relationship with one another. You are not to be one who walks in the door, lifts up your grimy, salt-laden feet and say, wash my feet. Clean off my shoes that I may enter. You are to be one who falls to your knees to clean the feet of another one who's come in as others fall to your feet to clean off your shoes. There are times when we are receiving comfort and encouragement from the church and that is wonderful and joyful. But there are but we are just as responsible and blessed when we, in turn, give such comfort that nourishes the parched soul of another believer. Encouraging them and strengthening them and building them up. Drawing them into the things of the Lord. While we wait for the return of the Lord and the next eschatological events, let us not flee from them for lack of understanding. These doctrines are given to us in God's word to motivate us, to motivate our obedience, and to encourage one another in godliness. And so what should we do as we see the wickedness of the world pervade all the more? We serve each other all the more. And we serve the Lord more diligently and faithfully, knowing that one day very soon Christ will take us from this life to meet him in the clouds. And there we may be with him always even to the end of the age. The question, the application that draws us in all of this eschatological information. Will you be an encourager to others in the church body and who are in need? Or will you be one who constantly demands attention? Some of us are kind of geared that way where we just demand attention. And so we must fight the tendency and the urge. There's others of us who are geared the other way, where we don't let the church aid in our weaknesses and our struggles. We don't let the church help clean off the, the grind that comes in. And we bottle it up, and then we explode because no one paid any attention. Either way, it's the same. You explode because no one gave you enough attention, and you're an attention hog. Or you don't want any attention and you explode because no one gave you any attention. Both of those extremes must be removed. We are to be those who come into the body of Christ to care for the burdens of others with your needs, your wants, and secure their needs, wants, insecurities, and desires and having your needs, wants, insecurities, and desires exposed as well. 
That should all be done with the encouragement and the pushing towards Christ and the reminder that very soon we will be raptured. And we remind ourselves that that very soon is in the scope of eternity, not in the scope of our lifetime. That very soon in the grand scope of eternity will literally be a drop from now. But in the day-to-day moments of our life, it may be years from now, or maybe before we leave here today. And if we have on our divine appointment calendar that you and I are not destined for wrath, then let us live with zeal every moment we can in the body of Christ, encouraging the body of Christ, lifting up the body of Christ for the glory of Christ, that you would be able to encourage one another as we see this day approaching. We're going to transition from 1 Thessalonians back to 1 Corinthians in just a few moments as we are going to be celebrating the Lord's table together. But I want to use this as an encouragement and a challenge to us that we would be those who, as we make this transition, would recognize the great joy of making this transition as well together in the body of Christ. We are gathered together around um, this table that's not here. But we're gathered around the table that we enjoy the meal with. And as we're gathered around this, think of opportunities to serve and minister to one another. Think of opportunities to look to the future. Think of what Jesus said to his disciples, that he had longed to partake in this table with them, this last Passover meal before his crucifixion, where he would establish the Lord's table for them, and that he would long again to take it anew with them in the kingdom. It's fascinating to me that Christ would bring his disciples to this event. And the significant event that was about to unfold was that Christ would be crucified. But as Christ is about to be crucified, he pointed his disciples to when Christ would take this table anew with them. He pointed them to the end times. May our hearts be appointed in the same. Let me end this portion of our service in prayer as we prepare our hearts to partake in the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the privilege that it is to spend time in your word looking into these events that are yet future for us. Lord, I pray that as we do so that we would not lose hearts, discouraged or disenfranchised because of the pressures of those who do not want to give study to end times or those who have determined that their theological presuppositions outweigh the truth of scriptures. We pray that your name would be glorified, though, as we desire for your scripture to speak to us. We ask that your spirit would enable us to fulfill what we have been challenged by, and that your name would be glorified in it. So, Lord, as we transition in our hearts now to partake in the Lord's table, I pray that you would allow us to be thinking of those that we need to minister to today. Not thinking of our own needs, but rather thinking of those that we need to be using our giftedness to minister to and giving us the opportunity to do so even as we depart from here. So Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.